Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, Cameron and I will talk about why there's more to Presbyterian church government than just having elders. And speaking of Presbyterianism, we'll explore the reasons for going through the Westminster Confession of Faith line by line in our adult Sunday school class. Whenever people ask what it means to be Presbyterian, one of the most common answers, and an answer that I give myself often, is that Presbyterian churches are elder-led. To be a little more specific, what that means is that the way the church is governed is by, this is the technical term, a plurality of elders. So it's not that one person, a pastor, makes all of the decisions. It's that the elders of the church together as a deliberative body, make those important decisions. And so that's that's a hallmark of Reformed or Presbyterian church governments, or polity, as we say. But there are other aspects that tend to get less notice. Um, Cameron, when you think about what it means to be Presbyterian, does that ring true? Like we typically, we, we just think in terms of, well, you've got elders at the church. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You know, I've even been a part of non-Presbyterian churches that had elders and they thought of themselves as having a Presbyterian church polity kind of a thing. And that's the way they talked about it. Right. I think it's pretty common as more and more people become aware of the reformational tradition as you see different kinds of churches embrace reformed theology to one extent or another. It's not unusual for those churches maybe to start with soteriology. And so you, you become interested in say like the five points of Calvinism or something like that. But as you dig deeper into the tradition, you realize there's a lot more to this than just the five points of Calvinism. And one of those questions that naturally arises is what does the reformed tradition have to say about how churches should be governed? And so you do see a lot of, let's say like Reformed Baptist or even like like a non-denominational or Bible church that has a strong influence from Reformed theology, it's not unusual to see those churches uh, appoint elders to serve as a kind of governing body or governing board. Mm-hmm. But just having elders at the local level does not a Presbyterian make. There's a little okay. bit more to it than that. We talk about there being, you know, wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And so a lot of times when we think of the local church, we think of, you know, having a group of elders to add their wisdom to decision making, to guidance. But there's another component I think that's important as well, which is the presence of higher courts. In other words, it's not just that the local church is governed by a group of elders. It's that there's actually a higher group of elders above that local church so that the authority of those local elders has some checks and balances. 
Right. If it was just a group of elders, there's not really a, a check or balance to to that group, you right. know? Right. So, I mean, obviously having a group of elders gives you more of a checks and balances environment than having just one man yeah. in charge, right? Mm-hmm. So a church that has just, just a, a pastor who makes all the decisions is always going to have less oversight than a church that has a group of elders who are responsible and and can hold one another accountable, Mm -hmm. but who holds them accountable? And I'm sure we're all familiar with uh, examples of charismatic leaders who appoint their trusted advisors to be their right-hand men. And so if it were just a question of a pastor choosing some elders he felt like he could work with, then you could have a structure that looks from the outside like there's accountability. But in reality, there really isn't because the elders all just kind of say yes to whatever the pastor says. And if you, as a member of that church, are on the receiving end of what seems to you like unjust or unfair treatment, there's really no one you can appeal to. Well, in a Presbyterian system, that's not the case. If the elders of the local church collectively make a decision that's that's not right, that is out of accord with our doctrinal standards, or in some way doesn't do justice to the needs of the congregation, it's possible for the members of the church to appeal that decision to that higher court. So in our case, we have the local elders, and we call those the session. And then we have above them something we call the presbytery. And the presbytery is just an assembly of all of the elders of the local churches in a regional area. Mm-hmm. Right? So our presbytery is huge. It consists of the state of Minnesota and South Dakota and North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And when all of the elders from all of the churches in that region gather together, that court, quote unquote, when it's in session is called presbytery. And if something at our church at Grace is done that is in some way objectionable to a member of the church, that person can appeal over our heads, as it were, to Presbytery, where all of the churches will scrutinize that action, and they will determine whether or not we have erred, but whether or not what we did was proper. Hmm. And so there's a higher level of accountability. It's even possible for the action of the presbytery to be appealed to the general assembly, Mm. which is all of the elders of all of the churches in in the nation. And so I'm not saying that's a perfect system of checks and balances. There is no perfect system of government, but it does provide for a level of accountability and oversight that I think these days, especially people really appreciate Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit more than just having a group of elders at the local level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I I think it does. One question that comes to mind is if the only time, say, a a member of the local church would ever appeal to a higher court would be when something's gone awry. Or are there other instances where they might correspond? Does that make sense? It varies. Yeah. You know, I, I think in an ideal world our uh, church members 
would have a sense of connectedness mm-hmm. to the the broader church, to the other churches in our presbytery. We are so geographically spread out that it's not as easy for members of our church to feel connected, for example, mm-hmm. to to churches in uh, Minnesota. But we have in, in our area a couple of other PCA churches, and we do work on trying to cultivate some connections there as well. And of course, it's always possible for members of the church to attend Presbytery and actually see for themselves the the workings of this. In fact, Grace hosted our Presbytery a few years ago, and that gave members of our church an opportunity to sit in and to watch the way that the, the business of the Presbytery is conducted. Hmm. Okay, so obviously the Presbyterian model is not the only model Maybe we can contrast this sure. with a few others. So you've you've mentioned this idea, whether it's a charismatic church or some other kind of church that has kind of the the lone pastor who right. leads this flock of people. Um, that's maybe a dangerous example, but there are other kinds of churches out there. Are there are others that we could contrast this with? Sure. Yeah. So I think you know the 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 big contrast that you see in the 17th century. So when you think about the Westminster Confession and and the various factions that went into that, the Presbyterians were one of the factions, but there was another group called the Independents. And the Independents were people who did not want anything higher than the local church. Today, we associate that with congregationalism. Mm -hmm. And so there's a form of church government that's pretty common in evangelicalism today called congregationalism. And and all that means is that the congregation all gets together and votes to make decisions. So in theory, something similar to democracy. Whereas when you hear Presbyterianism described, people often think, well, that sounds like Republicanism, like it sounds Mm -hmm. like a a republic, small r. In practice, I've been part of churches that had this congregational orientation. And what I found was that very rarely was it the case that the congregation actually governed itself through decision-making. Usually what would take place is that its representatives would make most of the calls and then occasionally bring important decisions to the congregation. In that sense, it wasn't that different from the way that a local elder-led church might run. Mm -hmm. But In practical terms, what that form of, let's say, congregational government often makes me think of is episcopacy, which I mentioned earlier. And that's the idea that the church is ruled by an individual, a bishop. Uh, If you think of the Episcopal Church, capital E, you know, there are some layers of hierarchy. So it's not that each individual church has a bishop, but there's a bishop who has perhaps multiple works underneath them. And and so there's accountability to that bishop, but he's not a uh, group of elders. He's one guy who's making that call. So there's a hierarchy, but the hierarchy is more like the uh, congregational church's decision-making tree. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's one guy who's making a call um, again, oversimplifying greatly, yeah, yeah. but uh, you get the idea. So, so there's one model that in theory is like everybody gets a vote. There's another model in the other extreme where it's like, well, oh, just one man, the bishop gets a vote. Hmm. 
And then somewhere in the middle, you have this, this small R Republican thing where the people choose representatives, elders, and those elders act on their behalf. And that model, I would suggest, just practically speaking, actually functions more in reality the way it's meant to in theory than the others do, if that makes sense. That, Why? that on, on paper, they're very different. Okay. But I think in, in, in practice, both the like one man is leading over a hierarchy versus everybody gets a vote. I think in, in, in practice, those do tend to kind of be, you know, one guy, whoever has the power or the influence or the charisma or whatever it is, ends up making the call. Whereas in our form of government, oftentimes you just structurally are forced to rely on a plurality of elders. And it it has a tendency to neutralize charisma, to neutralize, uh, let's say, personal power, because you are having to do things in a way that... uh, uh, a small group of wise and tested men can sign off on. Mm-hmm. And there is always that ability to go over their heads, so to speak. So there's always accountability. There's always a kind of a way to bring light onto the decision-making process. And so again, no form of government is perfect and every form of government is subject to abuse, but there is something about Presbyterian church governments that if you're one of those people who worries about too few people having too much power, mm-hmm. this kind of church government really does address concerns like that. Yeah. I think just thinking as a member of a, of the church, a member of grace, if I'm listening to this, it's comforting just to know that there are others out there that I can go to other authorities that I can go to. And I, I think We've talked about church history before and how church thinking about the long history of the church passed down to us kind of gives a, a stability to your faith. I think thinking about the church structure and governance actually kind of gives me also a sense of security within the church, too. Of course, like you just said, it's not perfect and there can be corruption at any of those levels. And we're all sinners. So there there are, you know, there is there is that kind of corruption. But yet when it's functioning properly i think there's this there's a stability that we can all be grateful for i agree with that and i think that the the reason why our church government is the way it is is not because we did our due diligence and we studied you know what's the best form of government the reason it's the way it is is as we look at the new testament and we see the way churches were organized in the new testament this seems to be what was going on There's always speculation involved in that because the New Testament doesn't just spell it out and say, okay, hey, do this, you know, have this number of of offices, call them this, and here's how it works. But when you look at what is going on, what is spelled out, this is a form of government that really fits well in what you see happening in the New Testament. And so that's the reason why we do things this way. But one of the benefits that we've observed is that it has this corrective effect on power, you know, that it does give you those checks and balances. In fact, if you uh, read your political history, you know, there are a lot of people who will talk about 
the way in which um, the American Republic and governments like it owe a debt to the Reformation mm. and the political thought coming out of the Reformation because it reflects that desire to have power wielded in ways that, that those who wield it are accountable and can be scrutinized mm-hmm. and, and even corrected when necessary. Well, Adult Sunday School is back in action at Grace, and I am excited about that. I was able to attend this last week and had a good time just listening in, asking a few questions. Of course, we are going through the Westminster Confession of Faith line by line, and I wanted to ask, why choose that text as our Adult Sunday School focus? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, The big reason why is just that I'm passionate about the Westminster Mm -hmm. Confession. I find myself constantly referring people to it. And when I do, often I get like a blank expression. (laughs) And it just occurred to me when we started doing this, which I guess was a couple of years ago, that um, people don't have as good a grasp of what the confession teaches as you would think. Hmm. Even if they've read through the confession, if you haven't really spent time going through it and unpacking it and and living with it, then even if you've read it, you may not have absorbed or appreciated all of the nuances that are there. Okay, so so question quick, though. Sorry, before you go further, when might have people encountered the Westminster Confession of Faith before coming to Grace? Because I I hadn't, and I went to seminary. We've talked about how I grew up Lutheran, but are there some denominations other than Presbyterianism, or, you know, where might people have read this? So usually people will not have been exposed to the Westminster Confession accidentally, So if you're familiar with it, you probably were introduced to Reformed theology in some way. So, you know, it may have been by listening to R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller. It may have been, you know, reading uh, theology books and seeing some reference. A lot of people outside of our circles are familiar with aspects of the Westminster Confession. If, If you ask them, what the chief end of man is. It's surprising how many people know that it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. They just don't know where that comes from necessarily. So there's a little bit of awareness, but you know, we live in an age when Bible literacy is at an all time low in the church. And so Westminster confession literacy is, is definitely uh, lagging as well. So it is definitely the case that we're usually dealing with people who, if they have any exposure to the Westminster, it's it's pretty superficial, you know, and then maybe you've you've heard good things about it or you managed to read through it or part of it or something like that. But um, but it's pretty rare to have this opportunity to just go through little by little and unpack it and get to ask questions about it. So right now we are in chapter eight of the confession and we took a little bit of a break. So when we started, we went uh, starting with obviously chapter one and we worked our way through uh, chapter seven on the covenants. 
And because of the pandemic, the last few sessions there we did via Zoom. But as a lot of us have learned over the last 18 months, discussion-oriented classes via Zoom are challenging. Mm-hmm. And so we took a hiatus for a while. Even when we resumed Sunday school for children, we just weren't able to, we didn't have the, the space to be able to pull off the adult class as well. And so this is our first time coming back to an in-person adult Sunday school class, resuming with chapter eight. And chapter eight is all about Christ and his role of mediation. And the fun thing is the first morning when we came back, as we started talking through the first section in chapter eight, when it was all said and done, one of the participants said afterwards, wow, that was fun. (laughs) And I was really struck by that because not a lot of people, you know, sit through half an hour, 45 minutes talking about systematic theology and come away thinking, wow, that was really fun. I shared that with, um, the other guys at Presbytery when uh, I was there and everyone got a kick out of it. But, but there's something exciting about the idea that, that if we peer into this document and we really live with it and we start unpacking the truth, there's something exhilarating about it. Yeah. You know, that, that the words may seem archaic and complex at first glance, but like poetry, if you live with it and you talk through it and everything, suddenly you start seeing stuff, then it's exciting. It's why I appreciate this slow line by line approach that we're, that we're taking. You know, I remember as a kid too, when I would go off to Sunday school on a Sunday morning and I would hear that my parents were going off too. It always struck me as kind of odd. Like, what are they doing in there? And they should have graduated by now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think adult Sunday school is is kind of a unique thing. It's not like college where you have to be in your classes. So all of these people are electing to be there, probably. Mm-hmm. And we're not all theology students like it might be at seminary. Right. So it's it's a unique setting, but what I have found is that it's a it's a rare it's a rare setting because you just don't get to talk about theology like that with adults very often in life anymore and especially such a rich text like this so i think it's a really good time yeah and i think that like the difference between what's happening in our classroom and what might happen in a seminary classroom for example is that our goal really isn't uh, teaching the theology our goal is meditating on the theology. So the reason why we are going through the confession is for its devotional, like its worship value. Mm. So as we're studying in chapter eight, who Christ is, uh, what it means that he's our mediator, uh, even when we're talking about uh, Christology and the two natures of Christ and that sort of thing, we're doing it from the standpoint of like, how does this allow us to worship him more? How does this allow us to love him more? Uh, We're trying to unlock the wonder, in other words. And so I'm not saying that seminary classrooms never try to do that. Of course they do. But our purpose here is is entirely that, that, that we're hoping that people can come out of this with a view of the confession and how it can serve them in their walk with Christ and, and draw them more deeply. So, so, so we're pursuing the confession as a spiritual discipline, not as an academic subject. True. So still, even so as a spiritual discipline, 
is there anything that I can do to prepare for for adult Sunday school? Maybe read the text in advance? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been encouraging people to not only read the text, but also to take uh, some time and to write it out. And you remember in English class, diagramming sentences and I, I hated diagramming sentences, but but there's something to be said for copying out each section that, that we're going to study and trying to figure out the relationship of the phrases to one another. Whenever I copy it out, it, it looks a little bit like the poetry in the ESV. You know, it's not complicated the way <laughs> it's done. There's there's maybe, let's say, three levels of indentation. Mm-hmm. You know, so I've got like the main idea and then I've got qualifiers of the main idea and then qualifiers of the qualifiers. But even making those distinctions can help orient you, kind of help you focus on what the main point mm-hmm. of that section is. And so... I would encourage everyone as preparation to read through the section that we're about to look at and to copy it out for themselves. If you go to the church website, graceforsufalls.org, on the Adult Sunday School page, there's a list of resources. So I would recommend that you get either a hard copy of the Westminster Confession, which a lot of us have the, the hardcover PCA editions, that's great because it has all of the proof texts printed out. So you don't have to look them up and see what they say. It's all there for you. And you can write in the book and make your own annotations. And and that's great. There's also a PDF version that we link to if you want to print pages out and, and that sort of thing. I've also been recommending Chad Van Dixhorn's book on the Westminster Confession, which is, it's kind of like a very, um, surface level commentary. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's, it's, it's not technical. It's designed for lay people. And it just sort of walks you through the teaching of the section that you're looking at. And he'll also have a side by side, like the, here's the historic text. And then he'll give a modern text version hmm. of what he's dealing with. So in our last Sunday school class, I read the historic text and then I read the modern text. And, and I think it helped really clarify like what the big point being made was. So those are just a few things that you can do. You don't have to go crazy or overboard in preparing, but it never hurts just to be a little bit familiar before we come in. And then I would say in class to, to basically be ready to participate and be ready to have your mind blown a little bit. You know, there's (laughs) something about just opening up to this stuff and really just thinking about it that can be incredible. So even though it's it's nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, you know, just be sure you've had your coffee and you're just ready to, to let some of these big ideas come alive in your mind. Yeah. Well, to everyone listening, I will I'll see you there on Sunday. That's all the time we have for now on the commentary. If you'd like to listen in on our adult Sunday school classes on the Westminster Confession, we'll put a link to the class, A Good Confession, in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.